So there's no way around this truth. I was a very, very anxious child. I am in many ways recovering from many different things and worrying is one of them. It comes naturally to me. This uh, anxiety used to show up at particular times in, in my life. Uh, I remember when on the first day of second grade, I was certain that I had failed second grade. <laughs> it's the truth. It showed up uh, also um, at, at sleepovers, it showed up at sleepaway camp. Uh, I, I like sleepovers. I had a lot of friends, but there was this kind of homesickness that I had. And I'm remembering one particular night where um, I grew up in the Lehigh Valley and uh, we had uh, family friends who, um, the guy was the superintendent at Dorney Park. Now this is back when Dorney Park was um, not the major scale event palace that it is right now. And so in my mind, uh, this scenario I'm about to tell you about takes place right next to the old yellow rickety roller coaster. I was having dinner with this family, with my friend. I was probably about, I would say, six or seven. He was about the same age. And they put down dinner to eat, and I was going to stay the night with them, and they put down in front of us lasagna. And I hated lasagna. <laughs> and I refused to eat it. And I remember the, the, the parents didn't like this very much, that I did not like their food. And they went, and they got an apple, and they kind of just put it down in front of me. Didn't say anything, just said, kind of looked at it, looked at me. Like, this is what you get, buddy. And I burst into tears, asked them to call my mom, and said, I want to go home. Aww. Aww. How different my experience would have been, however, if I had gotten the following response. This comes from Janet Edgett. Dr. Janet Edgett, who some of you know is a family therapist, a psychotherapist in this area. I um, esteem her a great deal, a great deal of respect for her. She also was an anxious kid, and she also had difficulty with sleeping over at friends' houses. And very often what would happen, the night would begin and she'd be over at a friend's house, two or three hours would pass, and she said, I want to go home. And one of the parents would call her mom, and her mom would come and pick her up. Well, this one night, she went over to a friend's house, and her mom was dropping her at the door and met the mom of the child she was going to stay with. And the mom of the child she was going to stay with said in a very clear and distinct and loud voice, without any shaming in it, said these words to Janet's mom. I know they'll have a good time, and you know what? I'll probably see you in a few hours anyway. And Janet heard this, and she thought to herself, you know what, I can go home in a few hours if I want to. What's the big deal? And she went on and had the best sleepover with her friend, stayed over all night. It was named out loud, it was the truth, no problem at all. Literally, this is an example of the title of this message series, Good Looking Out. That's what that friend's mom did. She was looking out for Janet's interest. She knew that Janet had a reputation, if you will, amongst all the other kids of being the one who would always call home. And she just named it. 
and put it out there for her. And by allowing Janet to hear that, without any shame or blame or anger, it was all okay. That's what Good Looking Out is about. And especially in this message series, I'm talking about the liberating power of opening our awareness. The liberating power of expanding our awareness of what is there in our lives. Because even if we're not the six-year-old Ken or the seven-year-old Janet anymore, I think that many of us still have those worries or those fears or that concern about not belonging or that concern that perhaps our thoughts, our feelings, our moods somehow because they rise up the specter of difficult emotions within us. We may want to get out of them too quickly or deny that they exist or go to the other side. Just believe that everything our difficult thoughts, our difficult moods say is absolutely true and catastrophe is right around the corner. So particularly with the difficult stuff, to just simply accept that it's there. With the insistent moods, with the troubling thoughts. That's what this story, this Janet Edget story is about. It's about the liberating power of simply giving permission to say it is here, no big deal. We can move on with our lives if we simply open up our awareness. So much of life is about finding that willingness, not that ability, because I don't think it's just a human ability. It's not just my ability, but that willingness, which is a human ability, to be willing to let things pass through our fingers. Not punch out too much, not cling too tightly, but just simply to open-handedly hold our lives. Then we may find that what a lot of us want, this aspiration that we're told over and over again, sometimes in ways that are incredibly unkind, that we need to let things go. Has anyone ever told you this? You need to let it go. You better let it go. You're never going to make progress unless you let it go. You are a POS unless you let it go. You better let it go. Someone will tell you what POS is in a bit. I don't feel like cursing today. I felt like cursing last week. But letting it go is not something I think we can force. What we can choose to do is just like the song said for this morning. We can choose, however, to let something be. And notice, I mean, Paul and John knew what they were saying. There will be an answer. Not there is an answer right now, and you will know the answer right now, but there will be an answer. But first, let it be. And so when I find myself wrestling with a difficult thought or an emotion that I just wish would get out of me that, you know, I almost wish like, don't we have some kind of Unitarian Universalist exorcism that we can just get rid of this stuff and magically poof, it can go away? Well, we do. And it's called the power of paying attention. Let it be. Then see what's there. Then let it go may happen. Let it go is not something we can force. I think if we're focused on forcing the let it go, focused on forcing moving forward, we have um, unconsciously or perhaps consciously really assumed that our lives are broken and that our lives need fixing. And I don't like that word very much, fix. I mean, it's all right when it comes to, you know, doors that creak or uh, pipes that are spurting water. 
fixing's all right with that mechanical stuff. But when I think about fixing our inner states, what I really think about is that those of us who have had the experience of being active addicts know we look for a fix. And it doesn't fix anything at all. It just makes it worse. It's just a momentary illusion of release from what's troubling us so that eventually when we get back to what is troubling us, which is to say our lives... We're just bringing back an even weakened, war-weakened soul. Fix and its cousin fixation <laughs> means stuckness. These are not things that I think we hope to aspire to in the spiritual life. Sometimes we get so fixed on hoping things will change because we think that unless we put our blood, our sweat, our tears, our anger, our exhaustion into changing our lives, then nothing will change. And perhaps it's exactly the other way around. What if first is just simply accepting who we are, the let it be-ness of our lives, that change itself might just simply happen because that's the nature of life. Instead of learning and wanting to fix ourselves all the time, we, in fact, may gain something much deeper and much more loving and much more true, which is not fixing, but healing. And healing is as much an activity that happens to us as it is something that we make happen. Now, this let it be quality, this ability to first accept what's going on, let it be. See it for what it is. Sometimes we think we can't do this because it feels passive. We feel like, you know, we're not going to make any change whatsoever. This has nothing to do with passivity. This has nothing to do with inactivity. This has nothing to do with refusing to hold any viewpoint or any perspective. Simply because we're alive, we're going to hold viewpoints and perspectives. The point is how we learn to hold those viewpoints and perspectives. That's what makes all the difference. Do we hold them angrily? Do we hold them as if we are clenching a fist to the world? Or do we learn to hold our perspectives and our viewpoints more humanely, more loosely. It's one of the reasons that in almost every great spiritual movement that changes not just individual lives but mass of lives, it is predicated upon the practice, not always the perfect practice, but the aspiration of nonviolence. Nonviolence which is less about forcefulness and more about presence. Internally, we can practice nonviolence with ourselves when we recognize the kind of shame, the kind of blame, the kind of anger, the kind of resistance that we bring to our internal states that we may not like very much and simply first start with that place of acknowledgement. You are here. I am here. We are here. Thoughts are here. When I lead mindfulness meditation, if you've been through one of these, you may recognize these words. One of the things I ask people to do guided through these meditations is this. We've got thoughts, like 50,000 of them a day. We don't have time to believe all our thoughts. <laughs> they just come from someplace and they go to someplace. And if your head is anything like mine, most of your thoughts aren't worth that much. I mean, there's a few gems in there, I hope. I hope some of them are showing up and what I'm saying today, that's your judgment though. You know, sometimes we can cling to our thoughts so much. We can cling to tough emotions so much. And so I ask people, just perceive, open up. Don't think about your thoughts, but just kind of acknowledge them as you would a leaf on a stream on a fall day. It's coming from someplace, the river where you can't see it's originating. 
It's going to some place where you can't see its destination. And for a time, right here and right now, we get to see that leaf. We get to see that thought. Simply acknowledging it is the first step of recognizing, does it really make any difference for us? Is it a thought that keeps coming up and up and around and over again? Well, then we'll keep paying attention and see where that might lead us. But simply acknowledge the thought, the emotion, the difficult thing we can't let go of. Just maybe simply see it as a leaf on a stream in movement. Now, that for me is a a beneficial and a helpful way to deal with individual thoughts. But I like to think a little bit deeper about this as well, too, about, you know, what's the nature of my mind? What's the nature of consciousness itself? And I've focused on something that perhaps I like to cook a lot, really helps me to have a kind of more open uh, and accepting affect when it comes to dealing with the structure and the nature of my own mind, and it's this. I don't know why it says Google on it, by the way. (laughs) It's a colander. Sometimes we think like the mind is a vase. The mind is something that holds. It holds something for time, then maybe we throw it all out. But I like a colander better. A colander holds, it drains, and it empties. Maybe our minds, if we're really going to learn what peace is with ourselves and within ourselves, maybe our minds can be colanders, holding what they need to for a time, knowing that stuff is going to drop right out the bottom of it, and eventually we got to dump it out, and cook something new. Our minds can be colanders. If we exist in this way, we will see over time the insistent patterns, the things that keep showing up. We will see the congruities between moments. We will see the incongruities. We will see the things that abide. We will see the patterns, the repetitions. We will see the things that come out of nowhere and go to nowhere, and we just acknowledge them and let them go. When we can do this, we will see that in fact, we don't have to be passive. We, we perceive what it is to take action that is helpful action, skillful action, right action, or perhaps choose no action whatsoever. But action itself kind of comes at the end of the sequence, not right at the beginning. And this addiction to doing that is so much in our culture causes so many of us a kind of angst, Are we producing enough? Are we doing enough? Instead, perhaps asking ourselves, what would it be like to simply just be with, presence with, abide with, and then see what actions are called for? Maybe some of us are resistant to this or afraid of it, and so we wind up resisting our lives and never really getting in touch. The best... uh, Medicine that I know for this comes from the great, depressed, overly serious, completely brooding Danish theologian Soren Kierkegaard who gave me one of the best, best, because I was this for years, (laughs) best insights into what happens when we resist our lives. He says that despair is tough. Despair is really tough. He calls it actually the sickness unto death in one of his most well-known writings. But he says worse than despair is the despair not to be in despair. Think about that for a while. 
that we are so much resisting our lives, so much just sort of chronically unhappy, so much not paying attention to our griefs, our pains, our hopes, our hurts, that we won't even allow ourselves to feel simple sadness when we feel it. And so what he's saying in that great phrase, that great poetic phrase, the despair, not to be in despair, doesn't even recognize itself as despair because it's so much at a distance and pulled back from its own life. Instead, we might get closer We might recognize that there's a way of being in this life that, to borrow the old phrase that I've been hearing a lot in my life, I've been hearing it in songs, I've been hearing it in music, and I'm kind of really looking at, am I accepting this message or not? It's an old saying that says you can't push the river. And yet, how many of us try to? (laughs) How many of us try to kind of push the river of our own consciousness, push the river of our own hearts, recognizing perhaps instead that we might just First, get in touch with the current, and then learn to swim, become more fluid. I love the, uh, the phrase, and it's not even a phrase, it's like two words, three words. It's from the Gospel of Thomas, which I preached on before, and the Gospel of Thomas is one of these non-canonical books of Jesus. It didn't make it into the official Bible. And I think one of the reasons is, is that because Jesus in this particular gospel of Thomas doesn't spend a lot of time arguing with people who oppose him. You know, one of the things that sometimes makes for great drama, but not really healthy drama, is thinking that we need enemies in order to become ourselves. (laughs) It's kind of the lowest level of identity formation, that if people oppose us, then we know who we are. Well, the Gospel of Thomas doesn't spend a lot of time doing that. It's just a whole bunch of Jesus sayings. And instead of saying, you know, the Pharisees are opposing him, the Romans are opposing, it's just a kind of all these sayings, just a mystical, beautiful, wonderful, mind-blowing collection of sayings that says divinity is everywhere if we know how to look for it. And so one of these phrases, these brief phrases in the Gospel of Thomas is this, be passers by. That's really just, you know, first century mystical Jesus saying, go with the flow. <laughs> Stop pushing the river. <laughs> Be passers by. Imagine taking that attitude into your most difficult thoughts. Imagine practicing non resistance, non violence with your and our internal states that bedevil us year after year after year. Huh, there's a thought. I see you. I'm going to let it pass by. I mean, I got a great example of this on the silent retreat I went on last May. Eight days of silence. Eight days of my silence. The teachers were talking. I wasn't talking. Oh, boy, I see some of you take uh, deep breaths. Oh, getting scary now. Silent then it is. That's why it's so awesome, because you will see a lot of thoughts in eight days of silence. (laughs) And here's the great thing. You do it in the presence of other people. So one of the guiding principles, practices that they gave us as we started this eight days of practicing silence together is, duh, don't talk. (laughs) And especially, don't talk in the meditation hall. And so beautiful. I love that the universe is like this. What do I get? I get a guy in back of me and to the right of me who does nothing but mutter to himself during the meditations. 
And I have a couple different choices. I could get up and move. But I'm trying to take this practice seriously. And the practice is not to get to peace. The practice, as the meditation was called, was intimacy with our lives. And if we're ever going to get to that place, which isn't a place, but that way of being called peace, we first got to know who we are and where we are and how we are. And so I could see in myself all these thoughts, not just a leaf, but cascades of leaf threatening to dam up the river. This jerk, this SOB, why the hell doesn't he get it? Why don't one of the teachers come over and tell him to shut the hell up? Come on, don't you? Judgment, 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 anger, anger, anger for the first few days. And all I vowed was to sit with it. Because <laughs> it's not really him, it's me. And I did sit with it. And eventually I softened with it. And it wasn't just me who changed, because eventually what I heard with this guy is that he wasn't just an intermittent mutterer. He was an intermittent sobber. He was crying a lot of the time. And so from this place of judgment, my consciousness just rotated to this compassion. But none of that would have happened if I would have chose the easy way out. <laughs> I got to move to the other side of the meditation hall, which if the universe is just, as it often, not always is, but sometimes is, especially with me when I really need to learn something, there would have been another mutterer, but more loudly <laughs> on that side of the meditation hall, because I would have deserved that. That's what it means to learn to pay attention. One of our pieces of DNA, one of our core beliefs here is the burning bush is blazing everywhere. It's a way of restating in a beautiful ancient image, one of the core teachings of Unitarian Universalism, revelation is unsealed. It's not past tense. Well, the first time I ever really heard the burning bushes blazing everywhere be made sense of for me, it was a rabbi years ago when I heard a sermon. And this rabbi said, a burning bush is no big deal. <laughs> bushes burn all the time. The only way that the ancients could tell that this was a miracle was in continuing to look at it. Because <laughs> only over time were they able to see, wow, that bush is burning and not consumed. It was only with the paying attention that they got to see that something amazing was going on there. If we vow to keep looking in open-minded, open-hearted ways at our lives, we will see profound changes happening to us. We will see with our very identity some of the biggest bugaboos, some of the biggest bedevilments, some of the things that we struggle with for years. We will see that it changes. It doesn't go away. It's not magic. It's effort. And it's also grace. We perhaps even in time will see that we can joke about being a scared six-year-old who gets an apple and bursts into tears in front of a whole room of people and to recognize that's fine. I don't tell you that just for a laugh line. I tell you that because that's my life. And that kind of anxiety taught me a lot about the need for presence. It will give us a sense of playfulness with our identity. And when I think about my favorite example, not surprisingly to those of you who have been here for a while, my favorite example about playfulness with our identity and what happens when we stop being so, so freaking angry with ourselves and with the world and, and, and can unclench just a little bit, I think of The Simpsons. <laughs> I think of this great old episode called Stark Raving Dad. Homer wears a pink shirt to the nuclear power plant. And that is enough to get him labeled as an anarchist subversive. 
And Mr. Burns has him thrown into a mental hospital. And in the mental hospital, he meets this guy. Now, actually, at this point, I'll tell you what he's doing. It's actually, well, it is kind of sexual, but it's not really. Well, it is, but it's, you'll, just wait. It's actually really touching because Homer is, is scared. I mean, it, it's kind of a jokey thing, and, and it makes fun, of work, makes fun of workplaces that are so locked down that they will ship you out the minute you do anything different. But that first night, he's curled up in a fetal ball. You know, he is scared. He's alone. And he is befriended by this gentleman right there, a fellow resident of the mental hospital, who is Michael Jackson. That's what he's doing. He's doing the bad crotch grab, if you remember that one. He's doing his dance. And Homer Simpson doesn't know who Michael Jackson is, so he just believes him. He talks in this nice high voice like Michael Jackson, and he's about to get out of the mental hospital. He's going to be released, and he calls home, and he tells his son, he tells Bart, I'm bringing Michael Jackson home with me. And Bart tells everyone. There's big signs, welcome Michael Jackson. And out of the limo, because they order a limo on the way home from the mental hospital, out steps this guy. And everyone is pissed. Eventually, we get this fellow's backstory. And I can't even attempt to give like a Brooklynese accent here, even though I was born in Brooklyn, so just imagine it. This is Leon Kompowski. He's a bricklayer from Patterson, New Jersey who perhaps because he was a big, hulking guy, went through life angry and pissed off and spreading seeds of anger and mistrust all around himself. Until one day, he discovered that if he just talked like Michael Jackson and he sang like Michael Jackson, he made everyone around him happy. And so at the end of the episode, to belabor an obvious point, he says, which one of us is crazy? <laughs> when we give permission to see ourselves clearly, when we give internal acceptance to allow what is going on to go on, and to know that we don't have to push the river because eventually pushing the river will fail we will find that the change, the love, and the freedom so many of us are searching for simply comes from this first one word. Yes. This is our lives. This is your life. This is your life. This is your life. This is your life. You know what's going on. How do we allow ourselves to say simply yes? Give ourselves permission to be how we are. Attend to us with the kind of loving kindness that probably a lot of us aspire to treat other people with. But simply say yes. May you give yourself permission this day to be who you are, to act or not to act but to open space in your heart and then see all the incredible change that might come. Amen.
and may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. God of flow, God who is not silent and solid, but active and moving, divine that expresses itself when we allow ourselves to say yes. This is who we are. This is how we are. This is where we are. Just allow that to sink into ourselves right now. The wordless prayer of yes. May the wordless prayer of yes be in our minds and be in our lips and be in our hearts. As a great teacher once says, as long as we recognize we're breathing, There is so much more right with us than there is wrong with us. Amen.